James chapter 1, I want to share with you a thought by A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. Tozer emphasized the importance of what we think about God. He writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So Tozer is saying then that how we think about God must then determine how we live. He continues, it is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power, we must think of him more nearly as he is. So thinking too little of God, that he is unknowing, that he's not paying attention, thinking that he becomes fatigued, thinking about God as though he were like us, that he says things he doesn't mean, that he says one thing at one time and says a different thing at another time. The idea that we might think something untrue about him, that God turns a blind eye to evil, that God is unjust or that God doesn't really love us, any incorrect view of God will produce wrong living. In James chapter 1, James has already twice exposed wrong, erroneous thinking about God and has shown how thinking wrongly about God amounts to an accusation against his character, an accusation against his integrity. Earlier in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, James tells us to ask for wisdom, but that we must ask in faith with no doubting. And that word doubting, if you'll remember, speaks to us sitting in judgment, drawing distinctions between God's words and whether or not God's actions will match up with those words. It's asking God for wisdom and yet saying, but I don't think you really mean it when you promise that you will provide me wisdom to navigate trials in my life. James says that the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So asking God for wisdom, but asking while sitting in judgment in doubt over whether or not God's character will measure up to what he's promised is erroneous thinking of God. And it leads to not receiving the wisdom that we so desperately need to respond to trials. Then again in verse 13 of chapter 1, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Again, this is wrong thinking about God, that these trials, which then involve a temptation to doubt God or a temptation to not trust God, 
then to turn, around, turn that around into an accusation against God that God is actually tempting me. That God's goal in bringing this trial is actually to trip me up, to cause me to fail, is wrong thinking, erroneous thinking about God that leads to a certain way of living, blaming God for the temptation instead of receiving the crown of life, instead of being victorious in enduring and remaining steadfast. These wrong assessments of God's character and his being actually spring from double-mindedness. They spring from duplicity in us. And so James closes this first section of his letter by revealing God's character, that God is perfect, that God is whole, that God is without flaw in his being. Let's read James chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And so, Lord, we pause again to ask for your blessing for understanding and insight into these words, words that you have spoken, that you have preserved and brought to your people even today. In your name we pray, amen. James wants us to see God's perfections. He begins with this concern that we will be deceived. Verse 16 is a warning. Do not be deceived my beloved brothers, to sit in judgment on God's sincerity and his integrity, to undermine God's character by blaming him for trying to tempt us, for actually trying to cause us to sin, saying, I will give you the crown of life if you endure the trials, but really God's motivation is to, is to try to trip, trip us up to disqualify us, to accuse him of these things, which is what he was talking about in verses 13, 14, and 15, is to be deceived. It is to live under a false, deceptive view of who God is. Today, I want you to see that James reveals four perfections of God's character. Four perfections of God's character so that you will embrace a right view of God to keep you from being double-minded. Four perfections of God's character so that you will embrace a right view of God. This is so vital. If we're going to gain wisdom, if we're going to remain steadfast and therefore receive the crown of life, embrace a right view of God to keep you from being double-minded. Understand who God is, how he operates, why we must not doubt him, and why we must not say, God is tempting me. First of all, God is perfect in his provision. 
God is perfect in his provision. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Literally, this phrase, every good gift is every good act of giving. Every good act of giving. In other words, this is giving with no mixed motives, with no sleight of hand. God's every act of giving flows from his goodness. It flows from his sincere love for us. Every good act of giving is from above, and so is every perfect gift. God gives gifts without flaw. He gives them unmixed. So God's every action of giving is good, and every giving act results in a complete gift. In other words, God's provision in your life and mine is perfect. It is perfect in both the giving and the gifts, even when those gifts are trials. Even when those gifts are trials. We may not think of a trial as a gift. It would be strange if you thought of it that way. Apart from what James says here in chapter 1, though. Because remember, trials ultimately make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Which our faith must be. It must be made whole. That's chapter 1, verse 4. They purify our faith until it has flawless integrity. And the wisdom that God sincerely or undividedly provides to endure those trials is good. It is perfect. And God never gives them as veiled temptations to lead us into sin. Trials become temptations because of our own lusts, our own desires, not the imperfection of the gift, not because of the imperfection of the giver. So what we see as an unwelcome intrusion into our comfort, into our happiness, God identifies as a perfect gift, which he gives with integrity for our good. So first of all, God is perfect in his provision. Second, God is perfect in his person. Now look at the second part of verse 17. God's perfect provision is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Wow. This is the only place in the Bible where this phrase, this title for God is used, the Father of lights. The lights here are heavenly lights. James is looking at the sun, the moon, and especially the stars. Like Psalm 136, verses 7 through 9, where the psalmist praises him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. The Father of lights is their creator. When James talks about the Father of lights, he's talking about the fact that God created these lights. He is their source and he is their keeper. They exist and they give light to the earth by his command. This reference to these celestial lights then helps explain the next phrase, variation or shadow due to change. Or in the old King James Version, it was shadow of turning. There's no shadow of turning. We actually sing this phrase in one of our favorite hymns in its opening line, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. The hymn writer was thinking of James chapter 1, verse 17. So with the Father of lights, there is no shadow of turning, no variation. Variation describes the orderly movements. This is a word used in ancient literature to describe the orbits, the, the timing of seasons, how those orbits and the changes the way the heavenly lights move or stay fixed depending on where they are or what those heavenly lights are, they create our seasons, our solstices, our calendars. This phrase, shadow of turning, refers to shadows or fluctuations caused by their movements. You think of a sundial and how the position of the sun casts a certain shadow created by the sundial was one way of keeping time. So with the Father of lights, within his person, there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now what is James's point? What is he saying about the person of God? Well, it could be that James is highlighting the unchangeableness of God. In theology, we call this God's immutability. He doesn't change. God doesn't grow. He doesn't learn new things. He creates all knowledge. He doesn't become more mature. He doesn't become more godlike. He doesn't become more powerful. God is immutable. He is unchangeable. And what James might be saying then is that just as the sun and the moon and the stars move steadily in their courses, so God doesn't change or fluctuate in his being or purposes. Now, I referred to the hymn, Great is Our Faithfulness, and the rest of that first stanza actually reflects this understanding. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not, as thou hast been, forever wilt be. So the writer of that hymn was thinking that that's what this verse was talking about, and it could be, but I think that James is making a slightly different point about who God is. I believe James is talking about here that there are no fluctuations there are no inconsistencies. There are no divisions 
within the person of God to cause any shadow within his being or character. Let me illustrate this another way. When I began shopping for my wife's engagement ring, I learned about the four C's, that's letter C, capital C, the four C's of diamond shopping. And most of you probably are familiar with these. The, these are the four characteristics of a diamond that establish that diamond's value and what someone ought to pay for it. First of all, there is the carrot, C-A-R-A-T, not carrots that you eat, but carrot, which really is not so much the size, but the weight, the density of the stone. There is then the color of that diamond, how much yellow all the way up to brown, how much tint of color is there in the stone. The more colorless the stone, the more valuable. Then there is the cut. That's the shape of the diamond. And some cuts allow more light to pass through them, making them more brilliant. Some cuts are more popular at some times or more fashionable, but that's the purpose of the cut is to cut the stone in such a way that it allows the greatest amount of light to pass through the stone. Lastly, there is clarity. Clarity. A clarity measures the purity of the diamond because almost all diamonds have blemishes or what they call inclusions. In fact, all diamonds do. The less inclusions, the more valuable the diamond is. You might have a diamond that is smaller in carat, but so much greater in clarity that it might be worth more than a larger stone. Small flaws, these inclusions in the diamond obstruct the light that passes through the diamond and causes shadows. That's why when you see a jeweler inspect a stone, they take the little glass and they stick it on there and they pass light through it. They are looking for inclusions. They are looking to see how many small little flaws and cracks there are in that diamond that, that obstruct the light. The fewer, the more valuable. Listen, James is saying that in God, there are no inclusions, zero. There are no flaws in his character. Light passes from God, its source, without obstruction. That's what James is saying. God possesses complete integrity of being, which is why you can trust him to provide wisdom to remain steadfast under trials. And it is why he cannot be tempted and why he never tempts anyone and can never be blamed for it. Unless we embrace this truth about God, we cannot know him. We cannot worship him. Because to think anything less of him is to make an idol in our own image. We cannot remain steadfast under trials. Without embracing this truth, we cannot mature. We cannot become perfect and complete. 
And we cannot know God's blessing, his favor, and gain the crown of life. Verse 12. So God is perfect in his person, without flaw. Thirdly, God is perfect in his power. God is perfect in his power. So he's perfect in his provision. He's perfect in his person. He's perfect in his power. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Or probably better to understand this as when he willed it to be so. It's talking about the timing. When God willed, according to his own sovereign initiative, according to his own divine schedule and timing that is not dependent on anything else, no other circumstance and no other person, when God willed it to be so, he brought us forth. The idea here is, could be, gave us birth, but here it's probably talking about a, like a seed, planting a seed, and when he willed so, he brought us forth. He brought us into being as his people. This phrase brought us forth is the same word he uses back in verse 15, if you look, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James is now taking the same word, and he's making this contrast Sin brings forth death. Don't be deceived. It is our desires that drag us away, that bait us, that give birth to sin, which then brings forth death. But God has brought forth us. He has brought us forth. In other words, he has brought us to life. This is bringing us into being as his people out of death and into life. God gives life. He is perfect and flawless in his power. Salvation belongs to God and it is by his perfect, flawless power that his will is exercised. And the instrument of his power is here the word of truth. The idea here is the message of truth. This is the gospel. And like so many other passages in the New Testament, the gospel, James identifies as the source of life. It is the gospel that brings us into existence as God's people. Giving us birth, or better, like a seed produces a plant. When God determined to do so, he harvested or brought to life out of the soil of death his people. This is God's perfect power. Fourthly, verse 18, God is perfect in his purpose. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is his goal. And bringing us forth into existence as his people, he has brought us forth so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, this is Old Testament lingo. And James's readers would have understood that James was talking about the Mosaic Law's requirement that the first portion of every harvest be set apart and offered to God. 
So for example, Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So when they harvested their foods, all their grains, there were other passages that talked about their wines and other things that they made from those foods, they were to bring them into the temple. The rest of the harvest then could be used for everything else, whether eating or selling. They were a pledge, though, of the rest of the harvest. God required this and the best, their first fruits, because it reflected then their heart's attitudes toward him. That was the goal. Is that what they say? My best belongs to God. My first belongs to God. And that determines everything else. And part, of course, of the, of the law was that if you do this, oh, you will overflow with blessing. You will be blessed. You'll never be in need. Now, it could be that James is identifying his readers as kind of the first generation of Christians with many more to come. As possible, remember that these believers to whom James is writing were almost entirely Jewish. Uh, the churches, these communities, they were scattered outside of Palestine. And, and it could be that James is identifying them and saying, look, you're the first generation of believers. And many of these folks that he, to whom he's writing may actually have been converts from the very first gospel message that Peter preached on the steps of the temple in Acts chapter 2. James is writing early enough that many of those believers may be these very folks to whom he's writing. So that would be true. In that sense, they would be the first generation, and there would be many other generations of believers to come. But I think the emphasis here isn't timeline, it's relationship. The first fruits were not just the first, they were the best. They were the favored. And they showed trust and faith in God that if I give him the first fruits, my best, and I do this, that God will bless. God will keep his promise to bless. The first fruits were set apart from all of the rest of the harvest and they were offered to God. And so they were special to him. So it is that we who are brought forth by the word of truth are set apart from among his creatures. That's another reason I think James is talking about relationship here. It's not first fruits among his people, as though they're the first in the line of many other believers, but first fruits, those who are special to God among all of his creatures those of whom he has brought forth into being as his, as his people. They are set apart from among his creatures and so are special to him. So we, in that sense then, are his first fruits. And this is the encouragement of God's perfect purpose. It is his purpose that is behind his perfect provision that we should be first fruits set apart to him. 
And this is the purpose which demonstrates his perfect personhood. That this father of lights who gives without division, who gives sincerely, who provides, who in his character is without flaw, that it is his purpose, which is also perfect and without flaw, to bring us forth as firstfruits. And it is the purpose behind the exertion of his perfect power, this exertion of his will, to bring us into a special relationship with him, set apart from everything else in creation. Is this a God who's duplicitous? Is this a God who has ever demonstrated any reason for us to doubt him? To question his integrity? Is this a God who is two-faced? Who is double-minded, claiming on one hand to give trials for the perfecting of faith, but is secretly desiring and scheming our fall into sin? Never. Never. We may be double-minded, and in fact, all of us are to some degree. And I believe that's what James in, this, in these first 18 verses is making clear that we may be double-minded, and all of us are to some extent. Every one of us has these divisions that we are bringing before God, that we are having removed. We are being made whole. We are being made complete. But God himself is without flaw. He is perfect. He is perfect in his provision. He is perfect in his person. He is perfect in his power. And he is perfect in his purpose. And listen, embracing this truth, filling your hearts with the greatness of God is the key to remaining steadfast. Because with this truth fixed in your hearts and minds, you can ask God for wisdom and faith and not doubting him. And you can remain steadfast then and receive the reward, the crown of life, never blaming God for trying to tempt you or trying to trip you up. That indeed, just as he has said, he has brought all of these difficulties, these trials into our lives for the purifying of our faith, the working of perfection and making us whole before him. Let's pray. Lord, help us to think rightly of you. And as we, even today and tomorrow and the day after that, face trials of every variety, every color and size and shape, may this truth of who you are, that you are a God who is perfect without flaw, that you bring all of these things into our lives as perfect gifts you give them. And that, Lord, in the same way that you have brought us forth through the, the word of the truth of the gospel, so you preserve us, so you provide wisdom, 
that we can remain steadfast and faithful to you. Lord, fix these truths in our heart then, that you are the good father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And we praise you and we love you today as our Father and our God. In your name we pray, amen.